Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. McCole, helping you take control of your health. And I have a repeat guest with us today, uh, Dr. Jason Saunders, who is the clinician who first introduced me to hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And I've had a chamber for a number of years now. How many years did we first connect, Jason? I was just thinking that. I think it's a little over two years. No, it's got to be three. It's got to it, be at least, at least three, maybe even closer to four. Uh, yeah, so uh, I've been through Yeah, time flies when you're having fun. So uh, interestingly, this is his passion, his life. He, his formal training is that of a chiropractor, uh, but he's going back, and this is why we're doing a follow-up, and he's actually getting a PhD in hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So uh, he's got to give us some great updates. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Of course. Yeah. I'm happy to be back and uh, love to share those updates with you and, and help just uh, share this with your audience. So today we're going to talk about obviously hyperbaric medicine. And, and I think the best question to start out with for those who are, have not been exposed to it in the past is uh, what do you think its benefits are and what can it be targeted for? And maybe comment a little bit on its use in the use of infectious diseases. And then we can talk about uh, how it's administered and how one can find access to it. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot in that question. So <laughs> I'll start uh, piece by piece, but what I would say is this, you know, uh, every cell in our body requires oxygen to create energy, all the cells, except for our red blood cells, basically. So our red blood cells are charged with the job of delivering oxygen to all the other cells who uses, utilizes that oxygen for the creation of energy within that cell. A lot of um, many chronic illnesses or, or many issues that people are, are experiencing uh, in, in general in America or other industrialized nations has a lot to do with um, decreased mitochondrial function, increased systemic inflammation, and a lack of the ability for cells to really generate the amount of energy that they need to perform healthy and, and optimally um, in whatever function that they have. And so, you know, we use hyperbaric oxygen traditionally for these, you know, terrible and severe conditions. And we often use it as a last result for, you know, literally right before uh, an amputation surgery or potentially, you know, as a life-saving uh, mechanism for somebody with carbon monoxide poisoning or, um, or you know, air gas embolism. So, you know, we only think about it traditional, uh, traditionally to help save the life or limb of somebody in a really severe condition, but the, the mechanisms that are working for those folks are very similar to the reasons that you and I might consider using hyperbaric oxygen for upregulating the oxygen levels inside somebody's body, which will help reduce the inflammation that many people are exposed to, increase mitochondrial function that many people have issues with, and thereby increasing the energy that those cells are able to generate so that we can start to see a much more healthy, vibrant, 
human, as each of their different cell types are starting to able to, um, to generate the energy that they need to function properly. Yeah, so why don't you give us uh, an update of your journey since we last talked and you know, what's been happening and you know, what, what motivated you to get back to school and, and continue your studies in, in this discipline? Yeah, so I think last time we connected, uh, I, was, I think I had just finished you know, writing Oxygen Under Pressure. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that was a great experience. You know, you've written quite a few books. So um, it was a big journey for me, but uh, it was well received and, and we did pretty well there. And at that point, we were, um, you know, seeing a great uptick in interest and in the awareness of hyperbaric. And, uh, you know, we were participating in a handful of different either interviews or summits or even, you know, online or, or in, in-person conferences. And, you know, having a good opportunity to share so much of the information of hyperbaric uh, with, with other doctors, with the public. And as that continues to grow, you know, there was, as you well know this, I mean, when I first started, I think about 14 years ago, the amount of research that was available in hyperbaric was, you know, negligible. At this point, it's grown a lot, but there's still enormous holes uh, in the research. And you know, so many people asking so many of the same questions, things like, you know, what pressure is required to get the benefits that I'm looking for? How many sessions are required to get the benefits that I'm looking for? And, you know, at this time, the real answer to that is still, I don't know. We know uh, certain ranges, we know certain periods of time, but we really don't know that, that level of detail. And so honestly, just being frustrated by, you know, reading as much as I've read and learning as much as I've learned and still not having those answers. And then also really uh, generated through some conversations between you and I, um, I decided that, you know, if we were going to get those answers, you know, someone's going to have to do the work. And so I decided that uh, I should contribute to that process. So I applied to University of Miami. So their PhD program in molecular biology. And then my focus is in specifically regenerative medicine, and I'm using hyperbaric as our tool for the research that we're gonna be doing to really help understand the different pressure ranges and ultimately what effect those different pressure ranges have and to be a little bit more, or hopefully a lot more specific in terms of what our expectations should be, what types of changes happen over what periods of time based on those different pressures. And uh, you know, hope to at least be able to contribute significantly to answering a lot of those questions. So. That was sort of the, the, the impetus to going to school. Now, uh, school was supposed to be a mix of in-person and online learning. And, you know, I started in the fall right before COVID. So my first semester was that sort of hybrid. And then we, you know, like most other universities, we ended up going fully virtual for, for most of the, the following year. Um, so, you know, classes are... Uh, a great experience. You know, it's different going back to school from this perspective, especially at this level. Um, but there's so much to be gained, so much knowledge to be learned. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to apply, you know, so much of this uh, biology and genetics and epigenetics into uh, the field of hyperbaric medicine and, and contribute my part to that. So uh, how does the study or the curriculum work? Is there a basic amount of courses that you need to take? And get under your belt and then write your thesis and have you started have you selected your thesis and started on yet yes so there is a there's a an amount of uh base knowledge education and 
in you know mastery in biochemistry and, and basic molecular biology, basic genetics. Uh, then there's a course load that you get to choose from, you know, that help really uh, a little bit more in depth with exactly what your topics are going to be. So I'm, I'm about two thirds of the way through the academic component. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you're about halfway, you're allowed to, you know, apply for candidacy and start with your thesis. So uh, I did write the thesis. I did have, um, you know, I went through that whole process that was approved. Uh, and then I just spent the last few months uh, writing the informed consent and the IRB. Uh, and so that the research itself has actually been approved as of literally about a week ago. Well, congratulations. Maybe you can share with us what uh, you're going to do your thesis on. Yeah, so there's been some great increases in, like I said, awareness and, um, and research in the field of regenerative medicine with hyperbarics. Um, specifically, I know, I know you're aware of the guys out of Israel that are doing a lot of that work. And so uh, I really want to expand on that because I believe while we use hyperbaric for uh, traditionally in, me- in traditional medicine, we use hyperbaric for these basically life-threatening or limb-threatening diseases. And so when somebody's next step is you know, likely to be an amputation of a limb or potentially death from an infection, you know, that's when hyperbaric is often introduced. And even in, in those dire circumstances, we seem to have great response uh, with hyperbaric for those patients. And so uh, that being said, we've still been so slow in, in traditionally to uptake more hyperbaric oxygen for, as opposed to these really acute and severe conditions for these other sort of chronic autoimmune neurodegenerative conditions. But my thought process is the mechanisms of action of hyperbaric are the same, whether we're talking about gangrene and radiation burns and osteonecrosis as they are for TBI and concussion, you know, maybe MS or post-stroke, you know, so many of these other conditions that we might be using hyperbaric for. And if we really get a mastery of the mechanisms of action, we can start to apply those mechanisms across the board to understand, you know, clinically we've seen hyperbaric work for so many of these other chronic illnesses. It's just that we don't have the level of research at this time to really support it the way we do, you know, some of the more severe conditions. So if we could really hone in on those mechanisms and understand them better, and then get a better feeling for what point of time and what pressure settings do we require in order to get those mechanisms to start kicking in, then we can really, with more confidence, apply this therapy to these other conditions and have more uh, consistent results in doing so. And so um, a lot of the work that I'm proposing to do is uh, tagging on to some of this work in regenerative medicine, where they were looking at, um, in some cases, a lot of the, you know, the collagen and fibroblast and stem cell response to hyperbaric. And then in a newer study that uh, came out, I think it was actually in 2020 on the telomeres and looking at, you know, this potential, you know, upwards of 20% increase in um, telomere length in certain, especially in certain immune system cells, I want to build on that knowledge base. And so what I'm doing is I'm, 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 I'm creating a, a study that's going to have uh, a lower pressure group and a higher pressure group. And we're going to be looking at, you know, uh, a whole cytokine panel so we can get to understand the mechanisms of the, inflam- the anti-inflammatory side. Uh, we're going to have a methylation panel so that we could start looking at the epigenetic uh, effects of hyperbaric. 
We're going to have a telomere component similar to the telomere study that was done uh, a year, year and a half ago. That was out uh, of Israel, right? Out of Israel. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to start comparing, you know, all of those metrics across roughly a, a three to six month time frame of treatment um, and over two separate pressure settings uh, to better understand which pressures are getting which effects. And again, you know, what period of time should we be expecting before we, we get the results that we're looking for? Yeah, what pressures did you select? So I selected on the low end, I, I selected the 1.3, 100%, 100 both are going to be 100% oxygen just, just to keep that consistent. But as you well know, and you're, bre you're breathing that through a mask, it's not 100% in the chamber, right? Um, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most likely in the setup that we're going to do, we're going to use hoods just to increase the likelihood of getting a full 100% mm -hmm. yeah. uh, uh, dose. But, uh, you know, you know that soft chambers are basically running at 1.3 and there's a lot of soft chamber use across the country. And there's a lot of... When you say 1.3, for those who don't know, that's atmospheres. Yes, the 1.3 atmospheres. In PSI, that's about 4.2 PSI. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to run that against uh, higher pressure, so 2.0, two atmospheres, which is basically, you know, 14.7 PSI. Um, and, and a lot of this is because, listen... If, if soft chambers are effective and they work well, we need to be able to measure that and determine where they fit in this concept around hyperbarics. Yeah, and sure make, would make it more widely available for sure. Exactly, you know, and if they don't, in other words, if we're, if across the board, we're talking about therapies and we're, we're not comparing apples to apples in any way, shape mm -hmm. or form, then we need to know that too. And we need to start being as specific as we can with, um, you know, exactly what the expectation should be when we're using, you know, different pressures of different equipment. Now, I suspect you've done a literature search and review before you submitted your thesis. And has there been uh, any serious or significant studies done on the soft, soft shell or soft chambers? So there's definitely a yes and no. Uh, there's nowhere near the amount of research in, in soft chambers as, as there are in hard chambers. The overwhelming majority of research is done at that two atmosphere range, which is why I'm choosing that as the, uh, the upper end of, of the research that I'm doing. In the soft chamber research, there is definitely some, there's some on, you know, sports recovery. Um, there's, there's actually some ongoing studies right now on um, hyperbarics for stem cell use that we're waiting for some of that published work to come out. Um, in some cases, you know, 1.3, as opposed to being used as a treatment arm in the research, 1.3 has been used as the sham group in the research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whatever the reasons for using it that way, maybe because the study team really thought that 1.3 wasn't going to have an effect and it's a legitimate sham, or potentially that, we're trying to negate the use of 1.3 within the field. I'm not sure, but there are some great studies. There's a, there's a study that was done on um, uh, cerebral palsy and, you know, 1.3 was used as the sham group. And, you know, with a lot of people, you, you know, this is as well as anybody else, you know, um, it's not that difficult to look up a study. You know, you might read the abstract, you might read the results and you kind of move on from there. Uh, very few people really start picking apart the studies themselves to really understand the design and what went into it and, you know, how valid are the results that we're really, you know, concluding. 
So in this particular study uh, at 1.3 as being the sham group, you know, there was a baseline uh, test. There was a control group that got no, no hyperbaric at all. And then within the sham group, there was significant improvement on the metrics that they were measuring. And then they had a 1.5, 100% oxygen, which also had a good improvement. And then a 1.75, 100% oxygen, which had even a greater improvement. The issue in the study was that while all three of those groups improved, there was no statistical difference or enough of a statistical difference between the 1.3, the 1.5, and the 1.75. And so the conclusion of the study was, therefore, hyperbaric does not work for CP. Um, although all three of those groups had you know, significant improvement. And so because the sham group was not considered a treatment, that was the conclusion of that study. Now, the, the natural consequence of that should have been potentially redoing the study and creating a different level of what the sham should be, obviously, and what the treatment arms ought to be, but that was never redone. And so as a result, you know, there's this study that the results say, you know, hyperbaric does not work for CP. Meanwhile, clearly what it means is we need more studies. It's just, as you all also know, studies are expensive. Uh, they take their very time consuming and you really have to have, you know, uh, a large interest in trying to come up with the right answers to really put forth the effort and time and money to, to get that kind of work done. Sure. So um, let's get into the mechanism of action because I find that intriguing. Uh, the general thought is that it seems to be relatively obvious is that if you breathing 100% or exposed in an environment of 100% oxygen, and you put that under pressure, you're going to deliver simply more oxygen to the tissues. So that there's, that, that's clearly a part, but that may not be the biggest reason why the benefit occurs. And the last time I reviewed this, it's been a while now, I, I thought there was some speculation as to the uh, degeneration of a, of, of molecule called HIF1-alpha, hypoxic inducible factor alpha, that is generated when you actually lower the pressure. So that seems that maybe much of the benefit occurs once you are getting out of the chamber and you reduce that because that, that causes, that catalyzes the generation of this molecule. So can you comment on that and give us your thoughts? Oh yeah. So I mean, a lot of the work I think over the last year and a half for me in terms of what I'm reading, but also uh, what I've been teaching in, in a lot of the courses that I teach is exactly that. It's I would say, we don't have an exact number right now, but I might say something like, you know, roughly about half of the treatment is occurring while you're in the chamber, being exposed to the pressure, being exposed to the oxygen, and literally uh, accumulating a surplus of oxygen because of the therapy itself. And then the other half of the therapy is when you get out of the chamber, that oxygen can no longer stay in solution. So it literally starts trying to, um, you know, bubble out of solution. But as that happens, it's not inert, it's actually very active. And so as it's coming out of solution, it's interacting with all of our cells. And as a result, it's triggering, a, you know, a massive cascade of events, you know, cellular communication that seems to stimulate multiple um a multiple series of uh, regeneration and anti-inflammatory and, um, you know, even, even within the reactive oxygen species themselves. So when we look at the, the first part, which is the dosage of oxygen a person is getting, which is really what hyperbaric medicine has been focused on for the last, mm -hmm. however, you know, depending on how long you want to go back in history. Um, and that's measurable. You can say, here's a person, they were in a chamber, they were at this pressure, 
breathing this percentage of oxygen for this amount of time. And you could literally calculate the theoretical dose of oxygen that that person was exposed to and should have been able to absorb. And we've kind of just stayed in that mindset for, for all these years. And uh, there was a great paper, same, actually the same group out of Israel. Um, and they wrote this uh, paper, it was called the hypoxia, uh, hyperoxia paradox. And what they're saying is, we know, we know that there's amazing benefits of hypoxia, actually. And when you, when you go into these states of hypoxia, to your point, uh, HIF-1 alpha is stimulated. And there's this entire uh, cascade of cellular events that start to stimulate uh, the stem cell responses, the collagen responses, the angiogenic responses. So one of the biggest, you know, I, I would consider hyperbaric to be this anabolic therapy. It's a, it's a therapy that stimulates growth and repair. And so VEGF, BDNF, PDNF, all of these growth factors are stimulated from hyperbaric, but they're not stimulated from the hyper oxygenation. They're stimulated from the process that your body's going through as that oxygen is leaving your body, this hypoxic component, but it's not true hypoxia. It's mm -hmm. relative, relative hypoxia. And that's the important thing to note is that once you've accumulated all this extra oxygen, your hyper oxygenation component, as that oxygen is leaving your body, you're never truly hypoxic. It's just, you're losing the extra oxygen that you just gained. But the cell signaling factors that respond to traditional hypoxia are also seemingly responding to this relative hypoxia. And if you look at that paper, which is a great paper, it, it, it seemed to delineate this. With hypoxia alone, you will still get VEGF, which means you'll still get uh, a lot of angiogenic. So the rebuilding of the endothelial lining, the um, creation of a new microcirculation bed, you know, all this capillary regrowth will happen from hypoxia. You'll get these stem cell releases. So this potential for increase in regenerative nature of cells, you'll get this increase in, in the HIF-1 alpha, as we were discussing. But if you're chronically hypoxic, you're also going to get a down regulation of sirtuins and you're going to get a down regulation of mitochondrial function. And sirtuins could play a great role in things like, uh, you know, cell cycle life, getting cells out of cellular senescence or, or kicking them back into active life or, or literally apoptosis, killing that cell so that we can replace it with a new, uh, you know, a new stem cell. So sirtuins or even the genetic and epigenetic repair mechanisms, a lot of that has to do with sirtuins. So we don't want to downregulate those. We want to upregulate those. And then and also this, this low, this hypoxic induced sirtuin inhibition and sirtuins, by the way, are longevity proteins for those who don't know, yeah. very important to health and longevity. Uh, but are you suggesting that it's the relative hypoxia or it's the hypoxia that might want to experience in a low oxygen environment chronically? Yeah, good question. No, this is specifically an actual hypoxia. Okay. So in a low that's oxygen. What I, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. So this, yeah. this is like, you get the benefits of uh, with, with hyperbaric, you get the benefits of hypoxia with none of the downsides, none of the sirtuin inhibition. Not only not only not having the downsides, it's the total opposite, right? So in, 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 in actual hypoxia, you get the VEGF, the stem cells, and the HIF-1, but you lose sirtuins and mitochondrial function. Right, right. With intermittent hyperoxia, hypoxia, the way you would get through hyperbaric, you still get the VEGF, you still get the sirtuin, sorry, you still get the uh, HIF-1, you still get the stem cells, 
But not only do you not lose the sirtuins, you actually get an upregulation of sirtuin activity. And not only do you not lose the mitochondrial function, you actually get an upregulation of the mitochondrial function and even uh, increased mitochondrial replication. In other words, your body will actually replicate mitochondria and will get an increase in mitochondrial density in the tissue to make sure that the body is using the oxygen as efficient mm -hmm. as possible. So exactly to your point, you get all of the benefit of hypoxia and all of the benefit of hyperoxia simultaneously. And so it seems to be- and, none, and the third point is none of the downsides of the hypoxia that you would in a normal environment. Exactly. Yeah, which is like, that's just incredible. I didn't really understand until you explained it. So thank you. It's a really important distinction. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I'll, the other thing I didn't really wasn't clear on was I, I knew that hyperbaric th therapy was an oxidative therapy. It's an oxidative intervention, uh, somewhat similar to ozone. Maybe we could talk about that in a little bit. Sure. But I wasn't sure how it did, and you how it manifested that in your explanation of having the extra oxygen that was infused into the tissue slowly percolate out and being available as obviously an oxidative stress. I mean, there's no question. So with with that in mind, most of the protocols I'm familiar with suggest you that using a really selective potent antioxidant approach is really great. And my favorite, of course, is molecular hydrogen because once it's on board and you have it loaded like an hour or two hours before your intervention, that if indeed your body does perceive your body, not your mind, but your body perceives an oxidative stress that requires uh, some antioxidant intervention, it, it will make the antioxidants itself, the glutathione, SOD, catalase, all of these things that you may need. So what are your thoughts on using um, hydro, uh, hydrogen, uh, molecular hydrogen, or other antioxidant interventions? So another great question. I'm going to go a little further into that first. Sure. So there was another great paper done by uh, Dominic D'Agostino and Angela Poff, I think back in, uh, it was either 17 or 18, looking at hyperbaric oxygen, but also specifically looking at the reactive oxygen species or the free radical component of you know, what are the benefits or consequences as we upregulate or as we increase the amount of oxygen into the body, as the cells and the mitochondria start to uptake that oxygen, producing more energy, there is a natural consequence, if you will, or this byproduct of free radicals being released as a part of normal cellular respiration. And I'll say that, you know, I think in certain ways, while excess free radicals is obviously consequential to our cells, specifically, you know, especially like cell membranes, you know, lipid peroxidation and protein degradation, you know, so it could really, it could destroy cell membranes, mitochondrial membranes, nuclear membranes, genetic material, you know, so there are many consequences to all of this excess free radicals. Uh, at the same time, it's a normal response to cellular respiration and mm -hmm. our bodies have their own intrinsic mechanisms for dealing with some of this excess free radical. To your point, things like the superoxide dismutase, catalase, you know, glutathione pathways. And so there seems to be a distinction that we should make. One is that some of the free radicals our bodies are exposed to come from the outside world in, in other words, radiation, mm -hmm. smoking, air pollution, you know, the, the list goes on and on. So we need to have a robust intrinsic ability to tolerate mm -hmm. these anti these free radicals with our own antioxidant system. Mm -hmm. But in excess, we, we could be getting too much free radicals and we could be depleting 
our own systems, in which case supplementation should certainly be considered and used in, in a lot of those cases. Now, on the flip side, we look at hyperbaric oxygen as this tool that theoretically has all these great effects, but one of those consequences would also be considered this increased in free radical exposure. Mm -hmm. But there seems to be a very big delineation between a body that's exposed to uh, free radicals from the outside world, from our environment, versus a body that is exposed to free radicals that it's creating on its own. And one of those distinctions to make is that uh, through the use of hyperbaric oxygen, even without supplementation, through the use of hyperbaric oxygen exposure and the increase in free radical production from mitochondrial ATP production, mm -hmm. the body itself, assuming it has the right raw materials, will actually increase its own superoxide dismutase catalase mm -hmm. and glutathione pathways. So, which would number one, it would help make you more resilient to the hyperbaric oxygen, but number two would also help make you more resilient to all the other free radicals that were potentially being exposed to, you know, by our environment. And so I would say two things. One, especially with patients who are what I would consider a little bit more fragile when it comes to oxidative stress, those people I would tend to not over-oxidate to begin with. So I might start at a more gentle protocol with hyperbaric with them. And I'm likely to want to start quickly upregulating their own system, getting the right supplementation for improving their antioxidants, intrinsic antioxidant systems themselves, or even other like the seleniums and vitamin Cs, like other extrinsic um, supplementation for, for antioxidant benefit. And then slowly improve as their system improves their tolerance for reactive oxygen species. We may not need as much of that. Or, uh, if we're going to be using high dose hyperbaric oxygen for a period of time, like you said, we might use things like, uh, you know, certain SOD precursors or uh, certainly molecular hydrogen has also uh, actually through conversations with you have become, you know, one of my, my most favorite also uh, antioxidants that we use. And we'll do somewhere between, you know, a 45 minute to an hour before mm -hmm. uh, exposures and start loading people with the molecular hydrogen as a, as a mechanism to reduce the consequences. But, you know, there are benefits. In other words, reactive oxygen species on its own also helps stimulate mm -hmm. hormone balance, helps stimulate, um, you know, cell repair by themselves. So there's like anything else, and I'm sure you would agree, there's, there has to be this balance. We could, we could over antioxidate somebody too, right? We don't want to we don't want to quelch all the free radicals because free radicals are a very important signaling molecule for so much cellular activity. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we want to be aware of the fact that hyperbaric does increase that. And we want to make sure that we're not overexposing somebody either. Yeah, no question. This is, this is why molecular hydrogen is such a favorite of mine because by itself, it is not an antioxidant. It does nothing to reduce oxidative stress independently. It's, it's its byproduct reactions where it stimulates the NRF2 pathway and causes your own body to make its antioxidants if your sensors determine that it's needed. Because if it's not needed, nothing happens. So it seems it has a built-in fail-safe mechanism. And, and from your experience, because I'm, I'm not, you know, this is only from academic intellectual perception, but I don't have any clinical uh, interaction to confirm that. Have you noticed, you seem to notice that as a benefit? Where compared to someone who would take high-dose vitamin C or combine it with glutathione directly, intravenous or sublingual, and, and uh, which you know is forcing the body to have this 
increase antioxidant capacity that it may not need. Yeah, so it shut, the, it shut down the beneficial free radical signaling mode, right. uh, Gathers, you talked about. Yeah, there were, there were, I would say there were earlier on and, and not even that long ago before I started using molecular hydrogen, I might've assumed somebody to be a little bit more sensitive to the antioxidant or to the oxidation than, than they were. And, you know, I, I could see that using, you know, a more standard approach to anti like actual antioxidants uh, would could have a negative effect, but even so could just prevent some of the benefits of what I'm trying to accomplish with the hyperbaric oxygen could interfere with that. And they wouldn't get the full benefit of that system. Um, since using molecular hydrogen more as that mechanism, um, you know, we haven't seen that, you know, okay, at all. Good. So your clinical experience conf confirms yeah. that. Yes. It's good to know. So another uh, interest I have is exercise. And it's one of the things that impressed me with you because you're, you're quite a physical specimen. There are very few people I've had to my house who are in as good a shape as you are. And uh, I appreciate that because, you know, you're seeking to teach people how to be healthy. And if you aren't yourself, it's somewhat hypocritical. So you're, you have a keen interest in personal fitness. So along that lines, we know that autophagy is a really profoundly useful and powerful longevity intervention. And one of the ways I personally seek to activate that is by fasting for a minimum of 16 and in, in the winter is sometimes 20, 22 hours before I eat my first meal um, and exercise in that fasting phase, usually right before I, I eat, because that further depletes the glucose or the glycogen in your muscle tissue, which continues to even further increase the autophagy activation. Uh, but then I'm wondering, you know, recently I've been doing that strategy and then following that before I eat. So I do the exercise and they go right from the exercise into the hyperbaric chamber. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that sequence and integrating the hyperbaric as part of an autophagy activation strategy. That's really interesting. I don't get that one as, as often. Uh, you don't hear me. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. Um, um, and I, and I, I did enjoy our, our workouts together. I'd love to do that again. Um, you know, it's not often I, I get such a big challenge on uh, competitive pull-ups like, like, <laughs> like you showed me. So, um, you know, I, I would say a couple of things. Um, some people use hyperbaric oxygen uh, from like a performance standpoint, let's just say, while others are looking at it more from a recovery uh, mm -hmm. kind of standpoint. Now, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the mechanisms of hyperbaric are really anabolic for, mm -hmm. for the audience, meaning rebuilding, you know, regenerating, you know, stimulation of growth, tissue growth repair, et cetera, cellular repair. Whereas fasting is very catabolic. Mm -hmm. And the autophagy is, um, you know, uh, a particular purposeful breakdown of certain cellular components or cells on a whole, especially not just certain ones, damaged ones, right? Damage, like underperforming and damaged right. cellular, right? Because if we can clear out the garbage, mm -hmm. it helps to stimulate the the likelihood of stem cells coming in to repair, recover, and, and regenerate the proper you know tissue types. So. Um, I, I love the idea. Number one, I think it takes time, obviously, for people to go through the process. Some people, as they start fasting or other things, they, um, you know, they have dips in energy while their body's trying to, to deal with changes in fuel sources and the like. 
And so there might be a moment where people going through that, you know, the, the, the exercise in a fasted state might take some time to get used to. But I think most people that we've worked with, I'm sure you have the same experience. Once you get through that process, exercising in the fasted state actually far exceeds your capacity to exercising in a, in a fed state. Um, in many ways, I, I find that especially for, for, for fuel and endurance and mus muscular endurance, especially. Um, and I would absolutely agree that the exercise in the fasted state uh, upregulate dramatically upregulates the, the effect of autophagy as your body is required to find even a greater fuel source during this time where you're expending even greater energy. Um, and so I think that that's a great combination to improve the, uh, the, the process of autophagy, as well as the ability to, to create energy from, you know, let's say from body fat and, and from, you know, creating ketones and the like. That being said, you then want to go into this fed state. You want to clear out the garbage. You want to break down the, the sick, mm -hmm. the dying, the dysfunctional cells. You're trying to clear out the garbage and then create space to bring in the new. Mm -hmm. and I think that that's where, you know, hyperbaric would fit that model. And so, you know, you're refeeding, you know, so your first meal I'm sure is obviously very nourishing. It's probably mm -hmm. relatively high in fats and, and you're, you know, you're refueling the body to now start this. Okay. Now we're getting fuel. Now we're going to recover, regenerate and heal the tissue that we just broke down. And because oxygen or hyperbaric oxygen specifically is so stimulatory and anabolic in that capacity, I think you're, you're literally, you know, at the end of the day, all the food we eat, I mean, the simplifying life, but like the food we eat that we're going to use for energy all breaks down into NAD or FADH2. And then we combine that with oxygen to create, you know, ATP, cellular energy. And so you're going to refuel properly with foods that are going to be, you know, very energy dense with good quality fats. And then you're going to oxidize those fats with hyperbaric, with extra oxygen. Right. And so as a, as a, um, as a synergistic effect to help refuel the cells to now upregulate their performance, you know, hyperbaric oxygen would play such an amazing role in helping to improve the performance of that cell. Who's now being refed to, to function properly, to heal and regenerate. All right. Well, I, I've got some questions on that, but I just want a clarification first, because I love the fact that you're getting a degree in molecular biology, because that literally is my favorite discipline. But it's my understanding that when we eat the foods, it doesn't break down to NAD or FAD. It breaks down the, the coenzyme A structurally, the, the units of coenzyme A, which are then converted with assistance of NAD and FAD to ATP. Right. I see that's why I said I was simplifying life a little bit. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but the, um, Interestingly, this aside before I get to my question, is that there's a lot of focus on using NAD as a supplement, primarily based out of Sinclair's work when he was at MIT and with Lindy Garanti's lab that showed that the, the benefit of NAD is not primarily in this process in the uh, uh, cellular respiration, but as a, as a uh, sort of a catalyst for that but is, is a support and the actually fuel for a variety of different enzyme systems of which sirtuins would be an important one, but certainly others. So uh, if you don't have enough NAD, you can deactivate the sirtuins as much as you want and it's not gonna work. So that, that becomes in how do you activate NAD? Well, many people now, including Sinclair himself are really into these NAD precursors 
and and niacin another precursor nmn and 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 uh, nr nicotinamide riboside um, but i don't think and i'm actually going to be speaking to a phd from the uk nicola condon dr condon soon actually next week i think um or two weeks that uh, about this because she's of the similar belief in that really that you can take the precursors but they're not as good as actually the exercise and specifically exercise in a fasted state when you just really are ripping it. I'm not talking about doing some yoga. I'm talking some really hardcore resistance training. And th that will activate this enzyme called NAMPT, which is the rate limiting enzyme for NAD. And it just puts it through the roof, literally 10, 20, 30 times higher than you can possibly ever get with a precursor supplementation. Yeah. And, you know, I think I've played, I don't know if you have, I've played around with quite a few of these different derivatives. Oh yeah, I stopped them. I don't do it anymore. I just do yeah. the exercise. I'm interested in uh, you, know, you know, you know me. So like, I'm interested in even just in my own life, just experimenting to see different variations and and do I see any of those changes? You know, and I think that I'm sure there's room for it. I'm sure there's a place for it. Um, I would be I would be surprised to find out that it doesn't do anything. At the same time, if if all you did was NAD precursors or even um, even NADIVs, you know, but you weren't doing the work on the diet and you weren't doing the work in the exercise. I don't know how much any of these things are going to change your story. In other words, the way I view it is that, you know, our bodies have the capacity to do amazing, mm -hmm. you know, transform bio biochemical transformations based on the exposures that we give them. But I don't believe that there's any biochemistry that really can occur without the proper sequence of signaling. That is how we were designed to, um, you know, to function. In other words, uh, you know, exercise would be a, an innate, uh, activity that our, we would put our bodies through this challenge. It goes back to that hormetic effect, right? You know, I don't know that you can create enough hormesis with the single ingredient megadosed in your body without all of the cascade of events of signaling that are required to actually kick it into gear and tell your body what to do with it. Mm -hmm. right. That being said, I think if you probably did had the right signaling and were doing the right exercises, and then you added some of those precursors, you could probably magnify the approach. But I think a lot of people also get stuck in the, in trying to manipulate the biochemistry without actually doing the work required to stimulate this, the, the right, you know. Well, there, there's two confounding variables that interfere with the optimal analysis. And one is the fact that as you're younger, like someone like yourself, you have pretty high NAD levels intrinsically. It doesn't start decreasing until you tip to 50s, 60s, and 70s where it hits the dirt. I mean, talking 90, 95, 99% lower levels than we are at your age. So, you know, it's not, an, it's not a clinical issue for the most part. And then secondly, and perhaps more importantly, is that it's almost impossible to commercially ask, de de determine what your NAD levels are. This is a research lab only test. There is no, you can't go to any lab or, or mail order uh, company and expect to get an accurate NAD test. It's not going to work. It's highly perishable, incredibly difficult to analyze um, biomolecules. So 
that's part of the problem. And if, if, if we can measure our NAD levels and we could a blood glucose, this would be a non-issue. We would know the answer a long time ago, but right now we just have to rely on sort of speculative science. Right. So anyway, getting back to the fueling sequence with hyperbaric, do you think, I understand that hyperbaric is an anabolic response, but do you think it's still, do you think it's better to go in there in a fed state just right after a meal, which is a bit of a problem because obviously you got pressure and you can put, especially in your chamber in three or four atmospheres, you got a lot of pressure on your epigastric area. So and it becomes uncomfortable, but I'm wondering, do you think it's better to be fasted and then eat right after or eat right before? So I'll still focus on the fact that I think that the majority of the benefits or effects of hyperbaric happen to be in the anabolic approach. But I will also say that there's a few studies that look at um, hyperbaric and autophagy. And I think that part of that has to do, I mean, we, that's like not something that's been explored anywhere near enough, but you know, potentially some of this upregulation of um, reactive oxygen species and the body's ability to just start um, kind of either kicking cells into, you know, from senescence back into active life or deciding that, okay, I've tried to upregulate this cell, I can't, so we're gonna, you know, go to apoptosis and kill it. There does seem to be this side benefit of even potentially increasing autophagy with hyperbarics because uh, of that, because of that function. There are some now. studies that support that. I thought it might, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. Um, but I think that because also the benefits of hyperbaric are, are for hours, even after your session mm -hmm. uh, to re it, it again, I know you don't love the, the, the analogy, but I still look at oxygen as a, as a nutrient of some type. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're, I, I look at that as you're refueling your oxygen, you know, and then you're going to eat shortly after that session. Anyway, to me, that's still within that same, so, same, same frame. Okay. It's kind of like eating protein after you work out. You don't have to do it like three minutes after you finish your workout you can do it within an hour. So, but you right. got to do it. You know, exactly right. At some point close to the, the close the enough. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that helps a lot. Thank you for expanding on that. So, um, gosh, those are the burning questions I had. So I guess, uh, so since we've last spoken, uh, what are some of the exciting, I mean, we went over some of the basic, but what are some of the exciting new areas that you uh, uncovered or learned uh, recently? I mean, there's been a few things that I think that we've done just for the profession um, mm -hmm. that have been really meaningful. Uh, one of which is, you know, I've taken over the years just to learn my, you know, learn more for myself. I've taken numerous uh, courses in hyperbaric medicine, mm -hmm. uh, trying to learn from those who know as much about the topic as anyone else, you know, particularly um, there's a, a gentleman, Dick Rutowski down in uh, oh, sure. uh, Key Largo, you know, he's 93, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he teaches, you know, a 40 hour hyperbaric course. And I mean, he, He's, I'm sure he's forgotten more about hyperbaric than potentially I'll ever know. Uh, I look to these people to learn as much as we can uh, to, to help continue furthering the field. And at the same time, uh, there are so many people interested in, in applying hyperbaric oxygen for the things that you and I are talking about today. And there's virtually been no mechanism for practitioners to learn what I would consider to be more of like a functional medicine approach to hyperbaric. And so uh, over the last probably about a year and a half ago, I started writing, you know, curriculum, similar curriculum that you would expect to, in any intro to hyperbaric course in terms of, you know, there's no difference between the, the science as the science, the, 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 the mechanisms of action or the mechanisms, the, the history is the history. 
the difference becomes how we apply the tool to different um, different conditions or, or for different people in different ways. And so, uh, I, you know, I put together a, a curriculum that I would have considered to be, you know, the basically the functional medicine hyperbaric curriculum. And I went to um, a particular organization, the International Board of Undersea Medicine. Uh, there's a, a gentleman, uh, Dr. Joe DeTori, who runs that organization, and they certify, you know, diving medic uh, technicians. They they certify. Uh, medical doctors in hyperbaric medicine. They've been certifying people in hyperbaric medicine for you know 25 years. Uh, that organization was actually started by Dick Rutowski, you know, back in the, the mid 90s, I believe. Uh, and so basically, he, uh, you know, Joe Dottori and I really came together, and between the materials that he had and the materials that I was writing, and we formulated this uh, functional medicine hyperbaric clinician course, and we've been teaching it now for the last year. Um, and really, the goal here is because. You know, hyperbaric, unfortunately, even with all the work that, that I've been doing and that and you've helped with and, and so many other contributors, for patients to access hyperbaric medicine right now is still very, very difficult. There are nowhere near enough clinics or, or, or competent practitioners, you know, applying this the way that it needs to be applied. And so, you know, a big push for me, and even for the research that I'm doing, is just to help create that awareness that gets more doctors excited about it, that want to actually use it in their practice. And so... Uh, this has been an attempt to really improve the education so that people aren't just going to hyperbaric courses to learn about wound care. While that, I think that that's still critically important and, I, and it's, you know, for folks who are practicing in that way, a necessary tool, we needed courses to help practitioners like myself or, or other people interested in the regenerative side to be able to learn how to apply it that way. And so we now have a mechanism for that. There is a course that now exists that I teach a few times a year to actually get people on the same page. That was, you know, I'd say the majority of this last year, other than, you know, getting through school and, and writing the thesis has been on, you know, developing that course and really promoting that course. And we've, you know, I think we've certified about a hundred 2,550, you know, practitioners and technicians specifically on the functional medicine side of uh, hyperbaric use. Terrific. So what, what are most of these clinicians using chamber-wise? Is the soft shells or the hearts? Uh, so it's a mix. Uh, a lot of, you know, more and more people are, um, some docs, are just, they're just nervous, you know, still getting into it. It seems so foreign. So that's a, a big part of what we're trying to do. And you know, the, the mission of the International Board of Undersea Medicine is just to simplify hyperbarics because I think a lot of doctors are still, there's so many myths, there's still so many misconceptions around hyperbaric medicine that, you know, doctors are nervous to really implement it. So in trying to simplify it, trying to make it easy, but still respect, obviously, um, the nature of the field, uh, I think more and more people are, are open to, to utilizing the therapy. I think a lot of uh, home use is still almost all soft chamber. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in the clinics, we're seeing a, a pretty good mix of soft chamber and hard chamber. And I, I think that we're seeing that the hard chamber can grow in a way that's uh, very safe, um, that's very effective, and that helps the, the, the clinicians feel good about what they're offering while keeping the patient safe, but also improving the, the percentage of, of effectiveness that they can have while doing that. Um, but at this time, I still see a pretty big mix between uh, soft chamber use and hard chamber use in those. And a lot of those doctors are either, um, you know, DOs or MDs or, or, or chiropractors or naturopaths. And, you know, they're either getting into more of a functional medicine base in the first place, just looking for other natural approaches to the same things that they were treating. And I think hyperbaric just becomes like a natural interest of, 
you know, supplying the body with a fundamental um, ingredient that it's so necessary for, for cellular performance, it just seems to make sense to, to start implementing a, a, a tool and a modality like that into a setting where you're trying to help, you know, uh, overall reduce inflammation. That's a chronic issue across, you know, industrialized nations. You're trying to just improve energy production cellularly. So, you know, it, it becomes a natural interest for a lot of these doctors to include it in their practice. You've provided a lot of great information, Jason, and, uh, and indications. Well, actually, why don't, before we go into this question, why don't we expand on the potential implication, indications where someone might be interested in using hyperbaric as an intervention? And then we'll go on, uh, discuss how someone can find a place to get this, this treatment. Okay. So uh, what was the first one? <laughs> first one was if you could list uh, in as much detail as you care to go into the, the, the primary um, reasons why someone would want to use hyperbaric therapy. Like in my, in my mind, it would be stroke. I mean, that's like the first thing that comes to your mind as soon as you hear that they happen to get them out of there, they go straight to the chamber. Uh, uh, would be a, a traumatic brain injury would be another big one. Uh, heart, even post-MI, you know, anytime where there's post-ischemic uh, reperfusion injury. So um, but why don't, you, why don't you give us your list? Cause it's more comprehensive. Sure. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think the, the list of potential, uh, uses for hyperbaric, I think is, is a very long list. You know, what I would say is that in the U S you know, according to the FDA, we have 14 indications that we use hyperbaric mm -hmm. for, you know, so these are say, ones that insurance will pay for. Correct. Yeah. You know, and again, that's, you know, things like radiation burns, osteonecrosis, osteomyelitis, gangrene, uh, certain diabetic neuropathies and, you know, non-healing wounds. Um, the, the list of potential uses of hyperbaric outside of that list, I mean, there's, there's roughly over a hundred what's considered to be internationally recognized indications. And, you know, some of that gives it bad press, like as if hyperbaric was a cure-all. Mm -hmm. And what I would say to that is it's, it's not at all. In fact, you know, I don't believe that hyperbaric by itself really cures anything. All it really is, is providing the body with a foundational, uh, again, nutrient, if you will, or, or molecule that virtually almost all the cells in our body requires to function. And we're just giving it in surplus, creating an excess reservoir of oxygen, you know, to improve that function. So, you know, who can benefit from that? I think the list is very long, but let's talk about, uh, it has an amazing role in neurologic issues and or neurodegenerative issues for all the same reasons, whether it's reducing inflammation, uh, there's literally neurogenesis through uh, brain-derived growth factors, so BDNF release. Uh, there, there's a lot of nerve and brain potential for regeneration. We know that you know, we can get an increase in mesenchymal stem cells, but we also know that we can get an increase in central nervous system stem cells as a result of proper hyperbaric utilization. So between its rebuilding of nerves and brain tissue, you know, it's increased in central nervous system, uh, stem cell activation, the reduction in, in uh, inflammation, the rebuilding of the microcirculation around nerve, right? So nerves and brain, the brain is, you know, what, 2% of our body mass uses up over 20% of our oxygen. We know how metabolically active the brain is. And so uh, any type of neurodegenerative or traumatic brain issue, be it concussion or other TBI, or even post stroke, having that excess reservoir of oxygen to help promote the healing 
literally as soon as humanly possible. That seems to have an amazing effect for so many of those neurologic, neuropathy, uh, post-stroke and neurodegenerative conditions. An entire other category of um, potential improvement would be within uh, the majority of autoimmune conditions. Similarly, for the inflammatory reduction, for the balancing of cytokines, uh, for the stem cell activation, for the healing, you know, for the collagen uh, regeneration and the fibroblast, the soft tissue regeneration. So just to, to help reduce the consequences of the inflammation and then again, to regenerate the tissue around it, you know, most autoimmune, be it from MS through potentially lupus, through RA, um, MS, you know, so many different autoimmune conditions that would respond uh, favorably to, to hyperbaric. Uh, any type of blood, um, either blood loss or potential ischemia. So whether that's again, back to the ischemic stroke or potentially, um, you know, an, an, an MI where you're having an ischemic, you know, heart issue, but in order to, to lessen the reperfusion issue, to lessen the reperfusion injury, but also to help promote the healing and the reoxygenation of the tissue to help repair and regenerate after an event like that. Again, the quicker we can get to it, the more impact we can have. Any type of ischemia uh, situation would improve, includes things like uh, even birth trauma or with CP, all similar in, in potentially in that vein. CP being cerebral palsy. Correct, yes. Um, and so uh, a whole other category of potential use would be, you know, what I would consider to even be... Um, either wellness or longevity or regenerative type therapies, you know, we're all exposed at the end of the day, we're all exposed to traumas throughout our life. We're all exposed to um, toxicity throughout our life. We're all exposed to, you know, injuries that didn't heal properly or surgeries that never healed properly, you know, as a way to have an ongoing therapy in our life that helps to continue to promote a reduction in inflammation an increase in growth, repair, regeneration of tissue, you know, uh, a, re, a rebuilding of the microcirculation for gas exchange so that we can deliver oxygen to the cells in need. You know, all the same mechanisms that we would talk about the very severe conditions that are traditionally, you know, insurance reimbursable all the way through chronic illness, you know, plaguing, you know, so many of us or our family or loved ones in, in the US and other industrialized nations, all the way through sort of this, you know, wellness, recovery, and regenerative type therapy, the mechanisms are all the same. We're just applying the tools slightly differently to help match the intensity of the therapy to the severity of the condition. And we can utilize the principles of gas exchange in, in various ways to help so many different types and varied types of conditions. Uh, one condition or, or subclass that I left out that we should talk about, we talked about it in the beginning, is again, from the immune system standpoint. So whether that's upregulating your ability to fight infection through increasing white blood cell activation through the reactive oxygen species mechanisms, you know, or, um, you know, we use it for ana uh, anaerobic infection, bacterial infections all mm -hmm. the time, even traditionally gangrene or mm -hmm. necrotizing fasciitis. I mean, one of the main reasons that hyperbaric works in those severe conditions is those, those bacteria are anaerobic. They don't live in high oxygen environments. So we know that putting a patient in a high oxygen environment massively decreases that uh, bacteria's ability to function, 
potentially helps to kill that infection, helps to block the toxicity of that infection, helps to break down the biofilms around that infection. And so, you know, hyperbaric becomes an amazing tool in the uh, capacity of immune system balancing and or ability to help fight infection. And along those lines, uh, other cells that uh, don't respond favorably to excess oxygen would be many types of cancers. So especially if uh, you're in the process of treating them with metabolic therapy interventions like Dr. Thomas Seyfried of Boston College advocates. So, uh, and Dominic D'Agostino has done a lot of work in that area too. So in the use of hyperbaric intervention as a synergistic strategy. Yeah, absolutely. For many cancers. So, all right. So a big question is a lot of good reasons to use it. So I'm wondering how frequently do you use hyperbaric? That is a question I get a lot. <laughs> so I would say that I basically do about two hours a week on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I happen to, I travel a lot, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm lucky because most of the traveling that I do revolves around hyperbaric, which means there's usually a chamber wherever I'm going. So I like to utilize hyperbaric with travel quite a bit, whether it's while I'm traveling or certainly when I come home. So I might, when I'm traveling, I might use it a little bit more than that. But my, my typical routine is roughly two hours a week. And then three times a year, I create um, a 30 to 40 hour protocol. Wow. Did not know that over like a six or eight week period. And so, Mm. you know, I, I sort of have gotten into a rhythm now of when that is in my life, but three times a year, I go through a, a pretty significant protocol similar to what I would use, you know, when initiating a treatment protocol for a patient mm-hmm. and all the other times in that year, it's usually about two hours a week. Interesting. So what is the logic behind that three times a year intervention? It's more than once a quarter. It's, it's, yeah. Actually, it's a little bit less than once a quarter. It's a little less than yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, it's really curious and surprises me. But I'm sure, so, I'm sure there's good reasons for it. Well, <laughs> Uh, I haven't done the research on it yet, but maybe I will. You know, my understanding base is based on this. It's we know that in general, a session or two, any session could be helpful. But for the real reasons that people do hyperbaric, one or two sessions, three or four sessions, it's not going to ever cut it. Mm-hmm. The main effect of hyperbaric is really achieved through the cumulative effect and the increasing and decreasing the, the wave of mm-hmm. hyperoxygenation to back to normal oxygen levels. But, you know, creating that, as we talked about the hyperoxia, hypoxia type paradox. And so anytime you go in a chamber and out, even though my, let's just say I did Monday, Thursday as my, my routine, you would still have some amount of that wave, but that wave, the space in between those waves would be pretty big. When you do a, a protocol similar to like what I would do for a patient. So let's just say, you know, four to six hours a week for eight weeks, mm-hmm. the frequency of those, uh, those, those lines up and down of hyperoxia, hypoxia are, are way, you know, the space in between them really shrinks and you get far more signaling to occur. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that, I, you know, while I, I often lecture and I'll say about half of the treatment is the time in the chamber and about half of the treatment is when you get out. My real belief at this time, based on the research that I've been reading about, I would probably even say maybe maybe 70, 75% of the treatment is actually getting out. Mm-hmm. And so the amount of frequency that you can create that hypoxia, hyperoxia, I think makes a big difference. And so to create those lump sums periodically throughout the year, you know, a lot of the things that we were looking for, the stem cells, 
the mm-hmm. um, whatever you know the, the growth factors, the BDNFs, the PDNFs, the microcirculation rebuilding, the immune system activation. We know that this you know twenty to twenty to forty hour window is really where a lot of that occurs. Mm-hmm. We don't have the research to support the idea that two hours a week over the course of a year would get the same response as six hours or five hours a week over the course of a month. And so until I have the research to support that, I still think putting these very particularly, you know, spaced uh, protocols throughout the course of the year really helps me maximize the benefits that I'm looking for with regard to it. It potentially could be overkill though, because it seems like at some point you're going to reach an asymptote or equilibrium where you reach the most benefit you could possibly reach. Uh, and I would have thought if anyone could reach, it would be you, because I don't know anyone personally that does more hyperbaric treatments. Um, so anyway, that's something to explore. I'll definitely have to cogitate on it and reconsider that because I, I've got a chamber uh, and I do it only an hour a week, just be, primarily because of time restrictions, but an hour a week. But the chamber I have is one of the few in the world, and you know which chamber that is, that actually changes the pressure midway through the treatment. So you get this drop in treatment. So you'd mentioned your body can't sense pressure, but it's just like, it really can't sense acceleration once you've, unless once you've achieved a static uh, speed. So when you're depressurizing or uh, or pressurizing, you're going to sense that big time. (laughs) No question. But once you're at pressure, you really don't notice it unless you've got some problems with your ears. Right. Uh, but this, so anyway, the difference is that halfway through my treatment, there's, it go, drops down. I usually get treated about three atmospheres and then I drop down to like two, two, two or two, one, uh, for the rest of the treatment. I think, so I think, I mean, it's, it seems like that, that there's a relative hypoxia during that drop. So you, Definitely. rather than the two hour, the one hour treatment, it might be equivalent to a two hour treatment because of that. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, two of the things that we're, we're working with in our clinic and the, you know, we, we support a whole bunch of clinics around the country. Um, we talk about creating a wave of pressure during, mm-hmm. throughout the course of a session and also creating a wave of oxygen. So we'll have people, you know, we used to take uh, in, in certain conditions, you're taking air breaks mm-hmm. where you go from hundred percent oxygen to 21% oxygen on purpose. The reason that that was initially instituted was really because it helps decrease the likelihood of oxygen toxicity. However, there seems to be a therapeutic effect. And so not only will we create a wave during the session of pressure, we'll create a wave of what percentage of oxygen somebody's breathing in that time. Again, because I think more of it has to do with the cell signaling that occurs than the physical dose. If all we cared about was the physical dose, we would stay at 100% oxygen as long as we possibly could at the highest pressure we could tolerate to get the most oxygen absorption. I don't think that that's where the majority of benefit exists. I think the majority of benefit exists by, you know, every time your pressure changes or your percentage of oxygen changes, which is really both changing the pressure of oxygen, you're stimulating HIF-1 alpha. Mm-hmm. You're changing the reactive oxygen species load. You're, sti- you're signaling those sirtuins. You're signaling, you know, a hormetic effect. And so every time you get those changes in pressure or the changes in percentage of oxygen, you're improving the rate of, you know, I picture them as switches, you know, every time you change them, you're flipping that switch on, off, on, off, on, off. And I think it's, it's the amount of times that you stimulate that switch. That's going to create the benefits that we're looking for more than the physical dose of oxygen over time. 
Yeah, intriguing, intriguing. So uh, we've given people a lot of resources. Now, the, one of the most important ones, if someone has been uh, really catalyzed to seriously consider implementing this in their own personal protocol or for a relative, how does someone go about finding someone? Because one of the complications, as you had mentioned earlier, there's 14 uh, indications that are covered for by insurance. And unfortunately, most of the hospital chambers will refuse to treat anyone unless they have one of those indications. So those, those centers are out. You have to find a private one. So why don't you go through the challenges and the resources that people would, uh, the hurdles that people have to overcome to, to find a center, a center or a treatment center. Yeah, so yeah, like you said, it isn't the easiest thing to find. And, and usually if you, you know, do a typical search online, you know, the, the wound care clinic near you and the hospital near you, they're gonna show first. Uh, and the unfortunate thing, like you said, is, you know, those phone calls are, are often dead ends. And, and it's not that the technicians there or even the doctors there wouldn't want to treat them per se, but you can't have, um, you know, dual fee schedules. And so you can't charge an insurance company, you know, two to $3,000 an hour and then charge a patient two to $300 an hour. And so you, you in general, these, these clinics just tend to not treat off-label conditions, period. Mm-hmm. What I will say is, um, you know, taking a look at their their websites can give you some pretty good insight into like what types of things that they're looking at and what types of things that they're treating. Like I said, we did initiate uh, this certification course, so you know, a lot of the a lot of the clinics that we've certified so far, we've posted, and so our main website is hbotusa.com, and uh, we have a locations tab there. So the not all of them, but many of the centers that we've uh, trained and certified those folks and their clinics uh, are listed on that for people to find clinics that would function similarly to the way that, you know, I would function in the clinics that we own on the East Coast. And so that could be a good way to find some people. Um, you know, otherwise, it's, it's like you said, it's an online search and it's, it's digging through a little bit just to see that, you know, a center that focuses on, you know, TBI and concussion, a center that might focus on neurologic repair and recovery, or a a center that is a more functional medicine-based center, those are going to be more likely the places that are going to consider treating people for all the different things that you and I have talked about today. Yeah, and the treatment dose or course or regimen should be about 30 to 40 treatments. And what what should the average center, I mean, I know there's a range, what do you think the typical range is going to be around? So people have an idea what to expect. Yeah, I think the the national average is probably around 175 an hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's definitely places that are closer to like 500. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a few places around the country that are closer to even 80 or 90. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I think the national average is probably pretty close to around 175 a session, especially if you're buying them in, um, you know, packages is the way it's Mm -hmm. usually done. 10 sessions, 20 sessions, 40 sessions at a time you know, trying to make it a little bit more uh, affordable for, for people to have access to that. Okay, good. And then you've written a book. We've done a previous interview with that. And maybe I'll throw that interview in, a, in this uh, page so people can have access to it because you know, most people can't find our old interviews now, unfortunately, after YouTube just destroyed all of them. So uh, what was the name of your book? And, and we can put a link to that. In the, in the yeah, so the, yeah, the name of the book is Oxygen Under Pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it's still available on Amazon too. And then HBOT USA is our main website. Um, we do still have a YouTube channel for now. Uh, no, I don't think they're going to take you out. <laughs> I heard a story. I was watching a podcast this morning. This one physician had a Twitter account, never posted one Twitter tweet, never. It was blank, empty account, and they banned him. 
<laughs> for, for, just for thinking, just for thinking something. <laughs> just for thinking something. It's like, how insane can you get? But uh, I was, um, I saw your Substack, right? Yeah, yeah, we're on Substack. Is that like um, a reasonable transition for, for video content? Yeah, it, it's, it's, the, it's through a PMA, a private membership association, which affords us a tremendous legal in, uh, insulation from uh, and, and protection from the forces that would take us out uh, permanently. So there, there's, there's a great risk and threat to what we've written in the past and uh, people don't perceive it, but it is. It's, uh, so, but this, this allows us to do it. It's this long and slow, painful process because we have to carefully vet and review everything that we've written in the past and make sure that it can't be used against us and then we still, but with, with, with that revision and putting out private membership site, I think it's working out really well. It gives okay. people the, the opportunity to access the old information. Yeah, that's huge, I thought. Yeah. It's gotta be all right. right. So is this great? Right. I, look, I look forward to connecting with you in person at some time in the near future and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you, man, you too. All right. We appreciate you more than you know. <laughs>